BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, January 16th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Joining me today as guest host is skeptic Rebecca Watson. She's just announced that she has ended her stint as co-host on the wildly popular podcast Skeptic's Guide to the Universe in order to pursue her own projects. And I wanted to find out what those are. So Rebecca, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much, Indre. Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. So what have you got in store for us? Yeah, I have a lot of projects going on. I am still running Skeptic, my website that tackles science and skepticism and uh, feminism and anything else we want to talk about at skeptic.org. And additionally, I'm still doing YouTube videos uh, about those same topics, science, skepticism, feminism, sometimes video games. And uh, I am also working on a new podcast that I'm going to be announcing sometime soon. Uh, And in addition to all of that, I'm doing my show Quizotron, which is a science comedy panel live event thing that pits comedians against scientists and science geeks on stage. And we're going to be in LA at the Steve Allen Theater on uh, February 13th, which is a Friday, Friday the 13th. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So any of your listeners are in LA, they should come out. Awesome. That sounds really exciting. Um, and where can people find you on the web if not at skeptic.org? Well, the best way to keep up with all of these various projects is through my Patreon, uh, which is at patreon, patreon.com slash Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A. And that's how I fund all of my YouTube videos. And I also keep people informed on what's upcoming for me. Awesome. 
So in addition to uh, checking in with Rebecca, I also wanted to check in on a topic that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about because I don't understand it very well. Um, But it's something that takes up a lot of the mass of the universe, and that is dark matter. So to figure out what um, astrophysicists currently think about dark matter, I talked to Katie Mack, and she is based at Melbourne University, um, having gotten degrees from Caltech and Princeton and Cambridge. And she studies the early universe and dark matter in particular. She's also a passionate science communicator, so I knew that she would be the kind of person that I would be able to understand when they're talking about things as wild as dark matter and dark energy. She's been published by Slade and Time and various other publications. So when I asked her to define dark matter for me, here's what she had to say. Dark matter is um, is a lot like regular matter in the sense that it's it's got gravity, so it has mass. And if you have two bits of dark matter, they attract each other gravitationally. If you have a bit of dark matter and a bit of regular matter, they attract gravitationally. That all works the same way. The thing that's really different about dark matter is that it doesn't seem to interact with light. It doesn't interact with the electromagnetic force. So... Because it doesn't interact with light, we can't see it. Uh, It doesn't absorb light, it doesn't reflect light, it doesn't produce any light. But it also um, doesn't interact with electromagnetism in ways that makes it act really weird. So Rebecca, what do you think? I think that that's fascinating. The, The whole concept of dark matter is so foreign to me and I think to most lay people. The idea that there is this great amount of matter out there that we can't see it, we can't touch it, we can only observe it in these roundabout ways. It it really makes me, it, whenever I get into discussions about topics like this, it leaves me in awe of human ingenuity that we have got to this point where we can explore something like this that's so otherwise nebulous. I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons why I respect people like Katie Max so much who can study this sort of mind boggling thing. I mean, it's just it's still hard for me to wrap my head around even the idea that there is so much out there that passes right through us. It doesn't it just doesn't behave the way everything else I know behaves. Right. Um, but before we get to the interview, I wanted to also check in with you on what you're thinking about what kind of science in the news has caught your attention. Well, I don't know if you heard about this back when it was first making headlines, but there was a company working on a speed reading app called Spritz. Did you hear about this? I did hear about it. Yep. So yeah, the idea is that these people want to help people read more quickly and decided that we waste way too much time moving our eyeballs across a page. And they had this idea that if we just throw words straight at your eyeball, basically, uh, one at a time, rapid fire, uh, and arranged in such a way, laid out in such a way that your eye doesn't have to move to pick up each word, that you can speed up people's ability to read to a remarkable degree. I was immediately skeptical of this. Not that you can do it, but that it's worthwhile and and that it would really have uh the same amount of um uh, of comprehension you know when you're reading something i know that when i'm reading something i like to go back and read a previous sentence to see how it relates to what i'm reading now especially if i'm reading something technical the details matter and if they're just flying by me i don't really have a chance to grab a hold of that information 
So I apparently I wasn't the only one with these concerns. Some researchers decided to do a study to test whether or not people really are processing the data that they're receiving through applications like Spritz in the same way that they would if they were just reading regularly off a page. So this paper was just published in Computers in Human Behavior called Rapid Serial Visual Presentation in Reading, The Case of Spritz. And the researchers just had volunteers. There were 60 participants in this study, so not a huge study, but enough to give us an idea of maybe what's going on here. They had them either read regularly a a passage from a book or read using the spritz method of one word at a time very quickly. The people using the spritz method were allowed to pause if they wanted, but it doesn't allow you to go back and reread sentences. So it was a little – the people using spritz, it was a little slower than what spritz claims to allow you to read at uh, because of the pausing. But otherwise, it was it was very fast, rapid fire. And what they found was that, sure enough, they tested afterwards their, their reading comprehension. And they tested it in two different ways. They tested both the literal comprehension. So did you pick up on the facts that we told you? Like, you know, where did the voice come from? Did it come from a television or from a radio? Uh, and then they could also test how people, uh, the data that people inferred from the passage. So that would be things like what season was it? Was it winter? Was it summer? It wasn't stated outright in the passage, but you could pick it up through clues. What the results showed was that people had lower ability to uh, remember those literal details and about the same when it came to inference between reading and spritz. So spritz actually, you know, the the researchers sort of put this up, I think, as a loss for spritz because uh, people did find it more difficult to use spritz and also had lower literal comprehension. But I honestly thought it was going to be way lower than it was. And the fact that people were still getting the big picture the same as they were when reading regularly, I think is almost a win for spritz. And I could definitely still see people wanting to use it if their main goal is to just read as quickly as possible. I mean, you know, there's there's an argument that we lose so much of the detail of what we read just through right, normal forgetting, um, but that the inference, you know, the gist of it sort of sticks with us much more for, for a longer period of time. So, you know, maybe that's really what, what Spritz is doing is allowing you to just go straight to getting the gist and not wasting your time getting, you know, muddied up with these details, which you're not going to remember 24 hours later anyway. Yeah. It's funny because it sounds like you're you're taking a similar thing that I took from this study. When I read the headline, I chuckled with self-satisfaction that this thing I hadn't liked was failing. But then when I read the actual study, I was like, oh, well, they're still getting the gist. So maybe yeah, it's not it's so actually- bad. Kind of remarkable. And the other thing I would argue is, well, for one thing, 60 subjects in a vision experiment is quite 
big. Um, most some vision experiments have like four subjects because the, the you know the effect sizes are so big and there's just not a lot of variability between people. Reading is a little bit different. I mean that's it's more than just a visual task. Um, but in this case, also reading is a skill that you develop over time. So you know I could see Spritz arguing. You know you've got these novice spritzers. You know what if you had expert spritzers? Right. Um, you know professional spritzers. Really professional spritzers. Like if you compared them with professional readers, which presumably you know everyone else in the study was a professional reader. We, we all can read well. So that you might find different results. But anyway, yeah. interesting. There, there were a few other results too. They, they did find that spritz put more uh, people, people reported feeling like spritz was more difficult. So it was more stressful for them to use spritz than to just read. Uh, and also they found that it might be more taxing on the eyes because you don't blink as often. So you might end up uh, stressing out your eyes more quickly. But or maybe you just learn and adapt and develop better spritzing skills. Yeah. I hate that I'm kind of coming out on the end of this. Like, uh, it's, and it's the old fart in me who just wants to say, yeah, but a good book. You just want to like, you should slowly take it in like we did in the old days when everything was good. Well, there's, you know, I'm sure a lot of arguments for that too. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Katie Mack. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And they did to my door. And I have to say, I was very, very impressed with this particular mattress. To give you an idea of just how much Leslie's was selling for, a twin-size mattress is 500 bucks, and a king-size mattress is only 950 So to get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find a work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, Linda has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com and you'll also get access to watch these on tablets, iPhone, and Android mobile devices. So they have courses like Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, Breaking Out of a Rut, etc. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for this free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. This episode is also brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. With the start of 2015 upon us, they wanted the first crate of the new year to celebrate the geek and gaming icons of the past. Join Loot Crate as they rewind and give you exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron. That's not all. They're also bringing you some epic geek apparel, including an exclusive and licensed t-shirt so you can kick off the new year in style. 
and you can finally get ready to decorate your desk with an awesome retro gaming-inspired mashup figure. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So head on over to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save 10% on any new subscription. That's lootcrate.com slash minds, enter code minds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Katie Mack. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time, ever since we had a few conversations at a little-known conference called SciFu. And I've also wanted to talk about dark matter on this show. So you're the perfect person to talk about dark matter and finally have you on. So I'm excited. Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm excited about talking about dark matter, as always. So let's start from the very beginning. All I know about dark matter is that there's a lot of it. That we don't really understand it and that it doesn't behave the way other things that we know more about behave. So let's start with what, how, how is it not like the other things that we understand in the world or the universe? Yeah. So the dark matter is, um, is a lot like regular matter in the sense that it's, it's got gravity. So it has mass. And if you have two bits of dark matter, they attract each other gravitationally. If you have a bit of dark matter and a bit of regular matter, they attract gravitationally. That all works the same way. The thing that's really different about dark matter is that it doesn't seem to interact with light. It doesn't interact with the electromagnetic force. So because it doesn't interact with light, we can't see it. Uh, It doesn't absorb light. It doesn't reflect light. It doesn't produce any light. But it also um, doesn't interact with electromagnetism in ways that makes it act really weird. So when we touch something, when you when you touch um, the table or something like that, the reason you feel it is because the electrons in your hand are pushing against the electrons in the table. And every time you feel something, that's actually electromagnetism. Things only feel solid because of that repulsion between the charges in, in them and the charges in the other thing. Dark matter doesn't do that. So... If you tried to put your hand, if you tried to touch dark matter, your hand would go right through. So it's weird from that perspective. So we can't see it and it's, it doesn't collide with things. We call it non-collisional. Um, so we know it's out there because it has gravity, but it's invisible, completely invisible. So it should really be called invisible matter, not dark matter, because dark things absorb light and invisible things just don't care about it. Um, but it also, so it's invisible, but it also doesn't like run into stuff. So we know that our galaxy is kind of embedded in this huge, um, cloud of dark matter and the dark matter is kind of always, always swirling around and, and things are passing through it, but it doesn't bump into anything. So we don't see it collide with things and, and it, does, it doesn't heat up when two parts of bits of dark matter run into each other. They don't, you know, heat up like the way clouds of gas would, for instance, in the universe. And it doesn't form a disk in the way that other things do. So a lot of things in the universe, uh, uh, if they're sort of rotating, they form disks. We have disks that are galaxies. Solar systems uh, come out of disks of gas and dust and rocks. And then, you know, you get these sort of planes of planets going around stars. All of that happens because you have some kind of cloud of stuff that has a net rotation and the f- the fact that things can bounce, bump into each other means that it kind of settles into a disc shape in the same way that like if you take pizza dough and you spin it in the air, it forms a disc. Um, because dark matter can't 
like lose energy by bouncing off of itself, it can't form disks. And so you have sort of clouds of dark matter instead of disks. And so we have these sort of spherical-ish blobs of dark matter everywhere. So it acts really differently, but we can, but it's, it's still got gravity. And so we can see the effects of that gravity. So how did we first discover that it exists? And, and, you know, when did that happen? Was that 50 years ago? Is it a hundred years ago? Is it a thousand years ago? Well, it was, it was about, I think the first signs of dark matter were in the thirties and there was a, a scientist called Fritz Zwicky and he was looking at the way galaxies moved around in a cluster of galaxies and he saw that the galaxies were moving around too quickly um, to be held in by the stuff that he could see in that in that cluster of galaxies. Um, and so he thought there had to be something there that was that was dark. He he came up with the the term dark matter. Um, that was something that we couldn't see that was holding all these galaxies in. And then many years went by, and and people were, weren't really sure about those measurements and. It wasn't really clear what was going on. And then in the 1970s, another astronomer, Vera Rubin, was looking at spiral galaxies and how they rotated around. Um, so in, in a galaxy, there's a, a bulge in the center and a disk of stars and gas and dust and all that in around it. And the stars are moving around the galaxy. In, in our galaxy, our sun is moving around the galaxy every few hundred million years. It makes a, a circuit. Um, and all the stars go around. And so Vera Rubin was looking at how the stars go around the galaxy. And what she found was they were just going around way too fast. So it's like, imagine you have um, uh, like a merry-go-round and you have a bunch of children on the merry-go-round. You spin the merry-go-round really fast. If you spin it too fast, all the kids will fly off. Um, and if it's spinning really fast and they're still on there, you figure some either they're holding on really tightly or something in the center is holding, into, holding on to them. And it was the same thing with these galaxies moving around. Like we could see how much there was in terms of like stars and gas and dust, things that we could see. And there just didn't seem to be enough of it to hold all these stars in. They were just rotating around way too fast. And so um, Vera Rubin, when she collected all these spiral galaxies and showed that, that you really needed something extra, that's when people started to really believe, okay, maybe dark matter is a thing. Maybe we're embedded in this dark matter cloud and that's what's holding everything in and keeping it from flying off into space. So I can see how people might then theorize that there is this thing. Um, but do we have any evidence yet of, since we can't see it, is there any other way in which we can measure it or observe it? Well, the only way we can really observe it so far is by seeing how it affects things that we can see. Uh, so we've never, we haven't yet been able to detect the particle that dark matter is made of. We think it's made of some kind of new particle that just doesn't do electromagnetism, but does the weak force and does gravity, but we so we haven't captured that particle yet. Um, what we have done is we've seen lots and lots of different ways in the in the universe that it doesn't quite work unless you have extra mass there. Um, so we've seen the you know the motions of galaxies, as I've said, the motions of galaxies within clusters. Um, we've also seen how dark matter can bend space with with its gravity. So one of the things that Albert Einstein came up with was the idea that space bends when there's a massive um, object in it. So like if you have a black hole, it kind of curves space toward it. Any massive object bends space around it. And in fact, one of the first uh, confirmations of general relativity was uh, when they watched an eclipse and they saw um, stars coming out behind the sun, behind the eclipsed sun, 
and they came out at a different time than they would have if space wasn't bending around the sun. So everything that has mass bends space and dark matter has mass. And so by measuring the bending of space in galaxies and, and clusters of galaxies, we we've been able to sort of measure how much mass there is. And it's definitely more than just what we see in the, in the light. So we've seen evidence for um, extra mass in the universe, and there has to be something gravitating that we, we couldn't already see. We've seen evidence also in other ways. Um, one of the most, uh, I think, compelling pieces of evidence for dark matter is the fact that galaxies formed at all, really. Um, it's really difficult to get big clumps of gas to come together and turn into stars and galaxies without something else kind of bringing it all together. Because if you take two clumps of gas and you throw them together, they will collide and heat up and get hot and puffy. And it takes it's really difficult for them to, to form a collapsed object, um, as we would say in astronomy. But dark matter can, can sort of form these, these uh, foundations upon which galaxies can be built. And if we look at how, how galaxies have formed over time, uh, it's really hard to figure out how to do that without without dark matter forming the kind of seeds, the kind of foundational structure of of these galaxies. So, a lot of people say, you know, oh, dark matter is just this fudge factor that we've put in to fix all these equations, and that's you'd have to have like you you could either have many different fudge factors to fix equations, or you could have one new thing that's called dark matter. Um, and it it works a lot better if you just have some of the matter in the universe is dark. Um, most of the matter in the universe is dark, about 80%, 85%, depending on how you measure it, um, is invisible matter. But it acts just the same as other matter in terms of having gravity and um, you know being able to form structures. So it's... Uh, there's still there's still some contention in the community of you know are there problems with dark matter but it does seem to be the best explanation we have so far. So I think one of the things that I struggle with is the is this notion that yeah eighty to eighty five percent of stuff in the universe is dark matter yeah. and the rest of the stuff is things that we know a little bit more about. We certainly know what well, we think we know what particles are, you know, make it up and so forth. And so how confident are we or are you or are astrophysicists um, that dark matter really is just one particle as opposed to hundreds of other particles? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. We, we don't know. Uh, we don't have any particularly good reason to believe that dark matter is just one kind of thing. It could be a whole sea of dark particles, um, different kinds of objects that are that all share this property of having mass but no interaction with electromagnetism. There could be as many dark sector particles as there are standard particles, but they would all have to act kind of similarly in in terms of what we see. So the usual assumption is just there's one kind of dark matter. Um, we're going to try and figure out what that is. And then, you know, if there are multiple kinds, then we'll figure that out later. I mean, it's usually assumed that it's it's better to add just one extra ingredient to the, you know, our model of cosmology than several. But there are certainly um, lots of uh, suggestions that that there's a whole rich dark sector that that has a lot of different things going on. It's the only caveat to that is, it can't be so complicated a dark sector that there's a lot of like dark chemistry going on. Um, 
if there were things like you know dark molecules and and dark radiation and all that all that stuff just like we have in in our um our usual standard model of particle physics uh it would be there would be ways for dark matter to lose angular momentum and form into disks and stuff like that so there are certain limits to how complicated the dark sector can get just because if it gets too complicated then dark matter would start to act like regular matter and i guess it kind of makes sense that if you think about this 80 to 85 number, it sounds like totally outrageous to someone like me, where, you know, I think I know a little bit about the universe in which I live. And to think that I know so, so little about it is just kind of mind boggling. But when you think about what the visible universe is made of, it's, I mean, it's ma- from what I understand, it's mainly hydrogen and helium, right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, those two elements are are huge throughout the visible universe. So I guess, you know, there's there's a part of me that can start to believe that maybe dark matter, even though it takes up all this other um, space, does it take up space? That's another question. Um, yeah. So it, I mean, it has kind of depends on what you mean by take up space. You would still be able to put other things where it is because it would pass right through um, anything else. Right. So, I mean, you could make a box and say, you know, there's this much dark matter in your box, but you could put as much other stuff in your box as you want to, because dark matter doesn't, doesn't stop, anything right so that's so weird um, yeah uh, there's there's some sense in which individual particles of dark matter might have a size in the sense of like if you collide if you could collide two dark matter particles exactly enough uh you might get a a, a reaction between them um in fact it's possible that dark matter is its own antiparticle which means that if you take two dark matter particles and collide them they annihilate with each other and create other particles and so in that sense, the particles themselves would have kind of a size because they'd have to have, you know, a, a region where if you bang them together carefully enough, they would hit each other. But like you don't have dark matter objects, so they can't really take up space per se. Uh, you can measure the size of a region that's dominated by dark matter, but that's kind of not the same. But I I, I should point out, so... 80 to 85% of the matter in the universe is is dark, is invisible. But only about 25% of what's in the universe total, or 25-30% of the total stuff in the universe is matter at all. There's another 70-75% of stuff that's dark energy, which is totally different from dark matter, and is, is most of the universe. And so if you actually count up how much of the universe we have any interaction with or any understanding with or, or or anything that we can actually see that's about five percent yeah so i wanted to that's gonna be one of my <laughs> next questions so what is dark energy then i have i have a lot less to say about dark energy because we know a lot less about it um dark energy is some kind of some kind of something that is making the universe expand faster um there's a bit of a story behind it we know the universe is expanding. Um, it started in the Big Bang, and it's been expanding ever since. Um, in the 90s, a bunch of people were trying to figure out how how quickly the expansion was slowing down. Because you figure, like, you have an expansion that starts with a, you know, with a rapid expansion, but everything in the universe has gravity, is pulling everything in, so the, the expansion should slow down. And so they went, you know, about trying to figure out how quickly the expansion was slowing down. 
And it's kind of like, um, there were a few possibilities. It could be that it was, it was slowing down so much that it would, it would end in a big crunch at the end and everything would recollapse again. Or maybe the expansion was so fast that it would always be slowing down a little bit, but it would kind of always be expanding. Um, it's kind of like the difference between if you throw a ball up into the air and either it kind of goes up for a while and stops and falls back down, or if you throw it really, really hard, it can sort of escape the Earth's gravity and, and go off into space, but it'll always be kind of attracted to Earth, you know. Um, and what they found was that the universe, the expansion was not slowing down at all. It was actually speeding up, which in terms of the physics is a lot like if you take a ball and you throw it up into the air and it kind of slows down for a little while and then it just shoots off into space for no reason. Um, that's pretty much the same physics as what's going on with dark energy. And we don't know why that should happen. Um, so there are lots of theories about what dark energy could be. The thing that fits all the data really well at the moment is a cosmological constant, which is just a term that Einstein put in his equations of relativity that kind of is acts as an anti-gravity kind of term and expands space. And the reason Einstein put that in the, in the equation is that he didn't know the universe was expanding at all. And so he knew that gravity attracts everything. And he figured if there was nothing pushing out against the gravity of, of everything in the universe, then the universe would just recollapse and we'd, you know, we'd all be dead because the universe would have collapsed. And so he put in something to kind of balance the gravity of everything in the universe to keep it from collapsing immediately. Um, then when he found out the universe was expanding, he took away that term and figured out everything's fine. And now it looks like we have to put it back because the universe is accelerating in expansion um, for, for some reason. So, you know, it might just be some property of the universe that there's like some energy of the vacuum and that makes space expand faster, or there might be some kind of new uh, component of the universe, uh, some kind of field or whatever that, that has this accelerating anti-gravity kind of uh, action. But we don't really know. And it's really hard to study because like with dark matter, we know where it is. We can see the effects of the gravitational lensing, how space is bending. Um, we can see the effects of, you know, strange motions of stars and galaxies so we can map out where dark matter is. And we've we've done some amazing stuff with seeing where dark matter is in the universe. With dark energy, it looks like it's probably about the same everywhere. And all we can do is measure how quickly the universe is expanding and how quickly things are growing in, in, in the universe. And, and that's kind of it. Um, so it's really hard to learn more about what dark matter is fundamentally. So if... but. Do we know yet where the closest piece of dark matter is to the Earth? And can we get there? Uh, well, there's probably dark matter passing through us right now. I mean, <laughs> okay, so it's all around us. <laughs> it's all around us. Uh, our, um, our whole galaxy is embedded in a, so we call it a halo of dark matter. And not halo like a sort of ring around your head, but halo like a, it's a big cloud. Um, and it's more dense in the center of the galaxy and less dense um, out here, but um, yeah, there's probably particles of dark matter passing through you right now. Um, we are currently trying to figure out um, how to detect those particles of dark matter. So there are a bunch of uh, projects where you have a, a big detector underground and you put it way underground so that cosmic rays uh, can't get all the way down there. And um, you just wait for a dark matter particle to come in and, and hit something in your detector. And it would be really, really rare because 
you'd have to wait for a particular kind of direct hit um, weak interaction thing, and it's it's uh, it's a really hard experiment to do. But that's that's the hope that we can detect it uh, with one of these detectors. And there's been there have been a few hints here and there. Um, nothing that's been totally accepted by the community as being like, oh, we found it. But we're we're working on that. But so, do you think like you know, here, here I am. And I think, you know, in, in my studio recording this podcast and is, is 85% of the stuff around me dark matter, or is it much rarer than that on earth? Uh, so right on earth, it's not the dominant form of matter. Um, in the solar system, it's not the dominant form of matter. It's only when you get out to really large scales. So the, the, the thing about regular matter is because it can have those interactions, it can also, kind of clump together a lot stronger um, than than dark matter can. Dark matter stays pretty puffy. And uh, and so it, you know, dark matter can it can be more dense in certain places, but for the most part it's 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 a much fluffier kind of stuff. Um, but regular matter can form stars and, and rocks and things like that and it can get really dense. And in our solar system, the amount of matter, you know, the density is is totally dominated by the the, the sun and the planets. When you get out to scales of the galaxy, the spaces between stars and you know the spaces between planets and stuff is so large um, that even though individually they're really dense, there are very few of them, and so dark matter ends up being most of the matter on those scales. So there's not really a big effect of dark matter in our solar system. It's totally negligible in terms of what it does to orbits and things like that, but it is probably here, like we're passing through dark matter. Um, it's just a few particles at a time, you know, we don't really notice it. So sometimes I note that when we when there are two things we don't understand, some people like to think that they are related. So for right. example, we don't really understand um, some aspects of quantum physics. And we also don't really understand some aspects of human consciousness. And so some people put the try to put the two together to explain uh -huh. them. So <laughs> What are some of the quirkier ways in which dark matter has been used to explain things that you know that we sh our listeners should know? Uh, really, there's no evidence to support these claims. Well, I mean, one one thing that comes up a lot that's not it's not that out there, but some people try and connect dark matter and dark energy, even though they act in totally opposite ways. Um, there there are theories that like dark matter and dark energy can like transform into each other in certain ways. That's not ridiculous but it's it's not mainstream like they're probably different things um one thing that i found really interesting was there was a paper a while back suggesting that that some component of dark matter can can form disks it has some kind of um you know interparticle interaction that makes it form a disk and so there's a, a dark disk in our galaxy like sort of overlaid with the same with our regular disk and that this might have something to do with when the sun is is traveling around the galaxy, every once in a while it passes through this disk, and that could have something to do with like major extinctions, which was which was not an it was not a ridiculous thing to suggest, but it was it was pretty far out there. So that people sometimes talk about stuff like that. Have you ever heard the argument that dark matter is is the afterlife? No. That, okay. Oh, well, gosh. Just, just wow. putting it out there. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, that would be a really boring afterlife. 
Like <laughs> you just you just sit there in a cloud. Like Well, how would, do you know? You can't see what they're doing. <laughs> and they're not I mean, you can you can kinda of tell. They're just they're just moving around with random motions and they're not interacting with anything. That would be awful. Okay, well we can eliminate that possibility. <laughs> um, you heard it on this show. <laughs> <clears throat> So I also wanted to get to uh, one other aspect, one other subject that was uh, big in the news last March in 2014. Um, and these, this is the results from the BICEP2 team uh, who yes. claimed to have found sort of some, some, a signature essentially of the Big Bang and, or of inflation. And I, I wanted to follow up with you now. There, there have been a couple of papers that have come out. Uh, one paper was saying, no, no, it's just dust. And another paper came out saying, nope, it can't possibly be dust. Um, so enlighten us. What, what's going on? Right. So the the signature that, that this experiment was looking for was a sort of swirling pattern in the cosmomicrowave background polarization. So not even just the... So the cosmomicrowave background is the leftover, the sort of afterglow of the Big Bang. In every direction we look, we can see this sort of leftover radiation from from the Big Bang. And if we look at that radiation with polarization, like um, see how the light is aligned, we can see patterns. And they were looking for this particular kind of swirl pattern. And I, I, this is like several steps of analysis you have to do to, to dig this signal out of the out of the um, the light. And so it's really difficult. It's really uh, faint. And it turns out that that swirling pattern that they were looking for can be produced by uh, by some kind of early universe thing, but it could also be produced by dust in our galaxy. And the way that works is that some of the dust is aligned with the magnetic field lines, and it just kind of twists this, the polarization of the light, and it can make these swirls. What we we're really looking for was signs of gravitational waves in the early universe, which would be amazing, because that would be... Um, it would be a, a signature of inflation, which is this idea that the universe started out tiny and went through an extremely uh, fast expansion at the very earliest times, like within tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of a second. There would be a sign of that, but it would also be a sign of quantum gravity, which is really neat um, because it would be a signature of a quantum fluctuation in um, in the particle responsible for gravity. I mean, that's basically what it would have to be. Uh, if it were this this gravitational wave signature, um, and we don't have a theory of quantum gravity, and and there's no way that we could, like we we wouldn't completely understand that if that's if that were what happened, but it would be the first sign that that's the direction we need to go theoretically. So it would be pretty amazing, but it looks like it looks like the dust really does create this signature at a level that. At the moment, we really can't dig out of the data. So um, what the original paper said was that, yeah, dust makes this this swirling pattern too, but it makes it at a much smaller level. And, and the what we've detected is high above that, that level of the swirling pattern that the dust can make. And so in order to see this swirling pattern at the level we did, it has to have been this, this primordial signal. But then the Planck telescope... Um, put out results recently that showed that really the the amount of of this pattern you get from dust is equally strong uh, as what was claimed by the BICEP2 team. And so you could very easily explain the entire signal BICEP2 saw by saying it's it's just dust, which means 
which which doesn't mean that the signal isn't there. Uh, it doesn't mean that bicep two didn't see it. It does mean that bicep two didn't discover it. So in order for it to be a discovery, you'd really have to say, "I'm sure that it's it's the signal and not the noise." And in this case, the noise is just as big as the signal, and they didn't have a way of disentangling that. So it might be there, but we we wouldn't be able to tell. So what are we looking for? Is there going to be some new finding that's going to come out relatively soon that's going to you know give us a final answer? What 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 are, what are we expecting? Well, really soon um, there will be a joint analysis by the Planck team and the Bicep Two team. And I think as well, uh, Keck, which is another telescope doing a similar thing. And they're, they're going to dig into the data and really answer once and for all if, if Bicep 2 could have seen signal or not. Um, but my understanding, I mean, that, so that paper should come out in a couple of weeks. But my understanding is there's just too much dust. So from what I've heard on the grapevine, um, they, they really didn't see, um, you know, they didn't they didn't discover anything over the dust. They might have seen the signal at the same time as the dust, at the same level, in a way that they couldn't tell the difference. But they they almost certainly did not actually see the signal, which is a bummer. But um, there are other parts of the sky to look at that might have less dust co- contamination, and there are other experiments going that are going to try and look for this. So hopefully, um, we will at some point soon have a more definitive answer. But at the moment. You know, it looks like the, it just wasn't a discovery, which is a shame because we all got really excited. <laughs> okay, well, I, I certainly don't want to end the interview on a bummer. So okay. I want to ask you, what do you think in your lifetime will be the most amazing discovery that's plausible um, that will help us understand dark matter better? Uh, well, I think that there are a couple of different ways we're looking for dark matter. And I think any one of those three ways might tell us what it is. The three different ways we're looking for dark matter, uh, one is with these underground detectors that I mentioned. Another is by looking for um, signatures in, in space of dark matter annihilation or, or dark matter decay or some kind of particle process that produces light or high energy particles in space, that there, there should be some kind of process that happens that would give us a clue to dark matter and we're looking for those clues in space. Um, the other possibility is that the Large Hadron Collider might be able to make dark matter, which would be really cool. Um, so there, the Large Hadron Collider collides particles together and um, just sees what comes out. And if they were able to make dark matter, then they would do a collision, then they would count up all the, the debris, and there would be something missing, because there would be a particle of dark matter that was created and flew right through the detector, because it doesn't care. Um, so if you can, if you figure that like two dark matter particles can come together to make, you know, regular particles, then you can do the reverse and take regular particles and put them together and make dark matter particles. So hopefully the LHC will be able to do that. And that would be really awesome. Um, so I think that in the next 10 years, there's a really good chance that at least one of those methods will find a definitive confirmed signature of the dark matter particle and tell us what it is. I think I'd be reasonably willing to bet that that within the next 10 years, we, we, we'd figure that out. But well, hopefully we'll it'll see. be sooner than later, and then yeah. we'll have you back on the show to explain it. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Katie Mack. Thanks for having me. Wow, Indre, that was a lot to take in. 
Yeah, no kidding. It's just, it still kind of blows my mind. I always feel a little bit drunk after talking to an astrophysicist. <laughs> but Dr. Mack is such a great person to be talking to. I think she she's one of my favorite up and coming science communicators because she is just wonderful at, at breaking down these topics that at first blush seem like, you know, oh, I'm never going to get this. And now it's like, oh, I I kind of get this. Yeah, like when she first started talking about how the galaxies are disks, I was like, how on earth? What? And then she explained it. I was like, oh, oh, I see. <laughs> oh, it kind That's of how makes it sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, finally, there is this uh, there is this song cycle I sing for um, soprano and piano by a friend of mine who's a composer named Brian Holmes. And one of the uh, pieces is called Particle Physics. They're based on these poems by John Updike. And I think I finally get it now. There's this, um, I'll just, I'm, I'm not allowed to sing a lot of it because, you know, there's copyright issues, but I'll just a little bit. Yeah, we can get bit, a, a little few tiny seconds, bit. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it starts off like this. Neutrinos, they are very small. They have no charge and have no mass and do not interact at all. That's so <laughs> I get it. I get it. They don't interact. They have no charge and no mass. Anyway. Can I just say it gets better. I feel like you should <laughs> sing just a couple of lines of something after every interview. <laughs> Find okay, I'll, I'll sing you. I'll sing you one more line that is my favorite in the whole piece. Okay, so it's talking about how you know neutrinos just pass through everything, and so they say they snub the most exquisite gas. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny. Probably because you like a good <laughs> fart joke. I do. I do. It is a fart joke in there somewhere. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds and sticking with us as we talk about farts and sing bad tunes. <laughs> Rebecca Watson, thank you for being guest host on this episode. Thanks for having me. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, songs about particle physics, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climate.com. Once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.